This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. Welcome to Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath, where experienced leaders share their own brand of leadership to help you develop and improve your own leadership capabilities. And now, here's your host, Dr. Gary. Hello again, I am Dr. Gary, and today on Leading from the Front, our guest is a partner with the Transact Capital Partners, an investment banking firm specializing in mergers and acquisitions valued up to $100 million. He was one of the founding partners of Brighthammer, a global consultancy that helped improve the performance of their invested companies, and was a senior vice president with Cornerstone Realty Income Trust that owned and operated over 24,000 apartments. For two decades, he was an instructor with the Dale Carnegie Training and certified in all of their programs, but specialized in the sales advantage, leadership training for managers, and high-impact presentations. And during those 20 years, he was ranked among the top three instructors globally. That's out of thousands of instructors with Dale Carnegie. It's amazing. In fact, that's how I met him because my brother was sitting in one of his classes one day and he introduced me to this man. He's a member of the National Speakers Association and has conducted thousands of keynotes and training workshops for NASA, the National Association of Women in Construction, the DEA, the Flight Information Warfare Center, and McDonald's. He has appeared in Forbes, CNBC, and wrote a weekly column on sales for several publications. He's served on the boards of the YMCA, the Franks Foundation, and the Wintergreen Resort. Please welcome to Leading from the Front today, Mr. Patrick Morin. Thank you, Gary. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and very grateful for the invitation. Well, Patrick, uh, I've said a little bit about your background, but uh, why don't you fill in some of the blanks? Because what we talk about here on Leading from the Front is leadership, all things leadership. Leadership is a responsibility, not a position. You've had some high-level positions, but I'm sure early on, let's talk about your background early on, where the positions weren't so high, but you have to demonstrate some leadership, right? We all do. So talk a little bit about some of your background. Yeah, it starts off as paperboy and dishwasher. Yes. Everybody else, right? That's right. Right. I have my own paper route. That's right. That's exactly it. It's a, it's a, it's a mark of independence. Look, I look, I made $8 this week. Hey. Yes. The, uh, well, I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York, uh, Rome, New York, just south of the Adirondacks. And, uh, and it was a military town. It was, it was not only historic, but it, it housed Griffiths Air Force Base, which housed B-52s and C-5s, the big planes. My house was about two miles uh, from a two-mile runway where those things would take off 24-7. So you can imagine a house rattling. <laughs> you know, I've always visions of going places and doing things. I went to Oswego State University and then from there to General Electric. Uh, I worked at GE and GE Power Gen. Um, and that was in the Jack Welch years. So I got a, you know, up close personal look. 
at what true leadership really is because he was he was just a remarkable individual. As a matter of fact, the leaders of the organization at that time, just remarkable people within the company. What do you remember most about that that time? Because people have heard about Jack. He just passed away recently yeah. and uh, about his 20 years of uh, leading GE. What are the one or two things that really stand out for you as a young leader back then um, he, that you remember? The ability to ask the uh, smart question, not the ability to give the answer. It was uh, no matter what background was being given, he had the ability to uh, to ask the question that would just turn the whole conversation around. And he had a level of candor that you don't see in a whole lot of leaders. So whenever anybody interfaced with him, uh, even if he agreed with your position, he would sometimes take the devil's advocate side of it just to hear what the counter arguments were going to be before moving forward. And he really did challenge people. It didn't matter at what level of the organization. It didn't matter what age of the organization. He would reach out and touch someone who'd been with the company for a month, all the way straight up to you know his senior execs that he interfaced with every single day. So, and and you felt that I was further down the the food chain at GE when he was leading it, but you felt it on a regular basis within the businesses, almost like he was omnipresent. And uh, and it was it's it's it, the other part was. He was just inspiring in terms of his total vision of where things could, could go. And his level of confidence gave the entire organization a, a, a sense of confidence in, in, it, in itself. So when you, when you say you, you felt his presence, you felt uh, there was two things that popped into my mind. First of all, you said inspiring. But also, I'm going to sense that there was a feeling of that voice in the back of your head of accountability as well. Yeah, because it's GE, even though it's huge, even when I was a part of it, it was a relatively flat organization, right? And I was in finance. So, you know, you're, you're never more than a couple of degrees separation from Fairfield, you know, at the time from headquarters. And, uh, and, and there was always a sense of, I don't want to disappoint my leadership team. I don't want to disappoint the chairman. And it, it was never something of, you don't want to disappoint the chairman. It was one of those things of, you, there was an obligation, a sense of excellence that ran through the through the company that you just didn't want to let anybody down. Yeah, a sense of excellence, that pride, right, that comes out and it, yeah. and it comes from senior leadership. So how did you use that, that first kind of uh, true understanding of leadership back as a, as a young man and utilize that as a foundation for Patrick Morin's philosophy on leadership moving forward. Yeah, and I think it even comes through to this day. Mm -hmm. Um, There was never a bias toward age. And I think that really has shifted within our culture in a favorable way, which is we see very young people with great ideas who have built out companies and we no longer discount them as, oh, you're the new guy on the, (laughs) you're the new guy on the ladder. And so even in my own leadership style, I've, I've never had a bias against youth to be able to say, no, you're you're brand new with the team. And my guys here at Transact will even tell you, I will bring them into extremely high level meetings. As a matter of fact, before I got on this podcast, I actually ran a letter that I was writing to one of my clients by a couple of our analysts and just said, what's your opinion? What's your thought on this? You know, does this blow up the deal or does this help the deal move along? And, and so there's a humility that goes along with the ability to say that someone else may have a different take on your output and what you're doing. And that in itself inspires action within other people. They know 
that I believe in their opinions. They know that I believe in, in, in how they're executing. And I, I trace that straight back to the GE days where you could join right out of college and your voice still mattered. Yeah, you, you make a great point about how, at, from a leadership standpoint, this question of engaging others in the process of decision-making, creativity, crafting, output, whatever it might be, the completion of work, that engagement is done minute by minute by the things, the questions, and the way you engage each other as human beings. And it doesn't matter who you're talking to, right? Yeah, it's it, very true. Because one of the things that's important about that is is that those moments of leadership and those moments of coaching are not at the performance reviews. They are almost on a daily basis, you know, in, in something that you would say to someone in the kitchen or something that you're saying to them down the hall or some kind of, a, you know, or a note or even acknowledgement that they, you know, that they just went on a vacation and what it's about because you're always signaling your values. You're always signaling their their importance to you and relative to their importance to the organization and how they fit in. And that's communicated in very subtle, frequent ways. Yeah, so uh, I'm going to go back to uh, the whole comment that you made about uh, never having a bias for age or for the youth and how that's shifted. I really, I really like that because – uh, some of the work that we do on compassionate accountability and, and the things you talked about at GE, inspiring accountability, whatever it might be, whatever words. Whenever I had a new employee, I would sit them down in the first week. We'd have a plan to bring them on board. And I would tell them, one of the things I'd like you to do is for the next 60 days, say nothing about your opinion of this organization, but write everything down. Because at the ex- at the end of the 60 days, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to come to me with all the things you think that we should stop doing, the things we should start doing, the things we should continue to do, both in your training program and anything else that you see. The, the sky's the limit. I want to hear it. Because that new eyes, the new set of eyes is what can create the greatest opportunity because we get so – you know, uh, we listen to our own press. We think we're great. We're doing a good job. Everything's going well. And somebody could come in and give us like the most amazing idea if we will just listen to them. Yeah. It's as a matter of fact, I just took a note on that because I think the, the, the validity of that activity, I can see it's, it's value immediately, immediately. And it's funny because in a different way, even within our current organization and, and the organizations that I was part of subsequent to general electric, valuing that new glance at the organization and valuing the input. And that's what keeps organizations growing. And that's what keeps organizations safe, especially in an environment like COVID, like, you know, or any of these, any of these major epidemics that are coming, you know, that are, that are attacking us, whether they're economic or whether or not they're competitive or whether or not they're health oriented, it's those new eyes that just said, Hey, I've noticed this about our company. I've noticed this about, our organization. And just because I'm young doesn't mean that it does, it's not valid. And I think really strong leaders have the ability to push down their own egos and to be able to say, wow, right, that means something. And what's interesting, there's a, there's a curious byproduct of that, Gary. And that is a level of self-confidence that comes in to people, even when they're new to an organization, when they feel as though they be, they're being heard, their confidence level goes up, their productivity goes up as well. 
And, and as a result, you're getting even more production out of them. You're even getting better ideas out of them because they know they've been validated so early on. In your case, the 60 days, you know? Absolutely. And you're, you're giving them a mission, right? I always talk, your mission, I used to tell people that came to, your goal, your mission over the next 60 days is not just to learn, learn the organization, the nomenclature and build relationships, but it's to make this training program better for the next person. Yeah. And the I'd best way say, I'd even add to that and say it's, yes. it's, it's an obligation, obligation, yes, are, responsibility. Are, yeah, you have a responsibility to make sure that whomever is going to, you know, whoever's going to come after you, that you have improved this process for the person behind you. I mean, that's humanity in general, but it's definitely part of corporate life. And you talk about so I you talk about these moments of leadership every single day because I talk about leadership as a process, not an event. And so many people think of leadership as an event. It's doing something spectacular. It's doing this great thing. It's making this big decision. It's not. It's talking to people as human beings every day. You know, it's funny because if you go all the way back to the good, the great stuff, you know, Jim Collins talks about that level five leadership, you know, and about the quiet leader. And I think I think a lot of times our culture goes to the celebrity leader or, you know, or to the aggrandized leader. It's or to the one beating their chest and not realizing is that large part of leadership is that influence and influence happens every single day. Catastrophic events or, or, you know, things that show our true colors as leaders, they don't happen every single day, but you're preparing for them every day in their eventuality. You hope that you never have to really apply to it. But a lot of times, I think even within leadership, it's not just the people who are banging on their chests. You know, it's it really is the people who can listen and who can move things on a daily basis. Yeah, the true sign of leadership, you said so many things about this, being humble, being modest, being able to listen, being able to take the opinion of others. But also it's egoless. It really is uh, selfless and egoless and understanding that the people, the organization, the mission is what comes first. Yeah. You know, so and we talk about this a lot in our, our leadership programs about becoming aware of our own ego so it doesn't get in the way of our ability to lead effectively. So what, you know, let's go, let's go back. You know, you went to GE and then uh, what did, you've gotten into a lot of uh, mergers and acquisitions and a lot of these, you know, buying and selling companies and sounds all very exciting. Uh, it more glamorous. Than- <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about the glamour though. Let's, let's uh, talk about the fun. Uh, let, so there's, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Sure. And you don't have to use names of companies, but where was your biggest failure? Where was your biggest success in this? And how did your leadership come out in those with the people that you worked with that you realized that you, you led them well, you had the goal, the mission, and it just didn't work. It just didn't, just didn't come about. Sure. Do you want to talk specifically about M&A or do you want to talk about any of the companies along the pathway? It's, it's, any, any of the companies along the pathway. Tell me your story, man. Yeah, I want to hear sure. it. So, so let me give you a timeline, a short timeline first, and then we'll we'll kind of go back to it. So after I left General Electric, I went down to New York. I went to Wall Street for a couple of years. Loved the business. Hated, you know, just it was just an environment that I was not really all that comfortable in. And, uh, and so I moved down to Richmond, Virginia, and that's when uh, I joined up with Dale Carnegie. And uh, I was with them full-time for about four years, but I was an instructor with them for 19 years Wow! because they do use adjunct instructors as well. But after my tenure with them, I was approached by uh, some friends who were starting a real estate investment trust and, you know, they're, they're really getting some momentum on it. Uh, So I joined them as an officer of that company, New York Stock Exchange traded company. We had a lot of apartments. I will tell you, that was also very formative for me because there was a uh, leader there, a guy still active now, a guy by the name of Glade Knight, 
true servant leader. He had a tremendous impact on the way that I lead people because he never got rattled about anything. Mm. It was remarkable. He was kind. He, I should say he is kind. <laughs> he's still there. Yeah. Uh, but he's, he's kind and he knew his, his team members deeply right down to the property level. And that really left an impression on me. Um, it did for the longer term. And then when we sold that company in 2005, that's when I started getting into private equity and started getting into uh, M&A and turnarounds and, and trying to fix companies on that. And there's also, there's a lot of challenges, which is how we get to your the answer to your question. There's a lot of challenges that go along with that. And then finally, I joined, Tra- I've been with Transact for the last seven years doing mergers and acquisitions. But in terms of successes and failures, and when I when I look at my failures, my failures have always would center around me hedging a comment when I did not go back to that level of candor um, that I was taught all the way back at General Electric, which is somebody needs to hear what I have to say. Um, and you, you see this a lot of times in in M and A, uh, especially when somebody is trying to sell their company. And they have, they believe that it's worth, you know, a significant amount more than the market is telling them that it's worth. You have five offers coming in and they all center around a mean, but they say, no, I want two X on that mean. And you're like, you know, you, you can shop this thing for the next 10 years and you're not going to find that, you know, this is what the market has told you. And this is what we told you before we even started in on this. And you had that decision point. And, you know, and that requires a level of confidence and communication. And I find that whenever, um, whether it was me leading the team or whether or not it was one of my guys, I, you always have to take responsibility for what it is. But whenever that wasn't clearly communicated in the heat of that moment to be able to say, this is what it is, that's typically when deals tend to spiral out. And so my guys know now that I am, I am all about, you know, if there's any bad news anywhere, it is, no, we're having the conversation. Hey, when do you want to make that phone call? We're going to make that phone call right now. (laughs) You know, hey, do you want to do this tomorrow morning? No, we're going to do it right now. Because I do find that it's that Rooster Cogburn, Catherine Hepburn movie, you know, back in the 50s. And she says, a sharp knife cuts the quickest and hurts the least. I've lived a motto of that, which is, if you want to win for good or for bad, candor is going to be important and speed of having that conversation absolutely matters. Yeah. And it's funny because so many times in the work that we do with leaders, they want to put those uncomfortable conversations off and then they find all kinds of reasons why they shouldn't have the conversation. Mel Robbins uh, has this thing that she talks about. It's the five second rule. Yeah. Says, yeah. Her book. Yeah. Yeah. It's great stuff. And uh, I recommend her stuff, but she's really communicates it well. And that's what you're talking about. Let's not wait 10 seconds. Let's take care of it right now. It's, it's uncomfortable, but if we do it quickly, then we won't convince ourselves to not do it. And that's the challenge that we all have as leaders is that we get in our own head. We know it's the right thing to do. And then the discomfort or the emotion gets in the way of us doing the right thing because we start to convince ourselves of the excuses that we allow ourselves to accept that we would never accept from anybody else. True. That's absolutely true. Ironically that you should just say that Chris Voss, who has a great, he's a FBI negotiator. He just came out with the fabulous book called never split the difference. He actually had a piece in the wall street journal on Monday uh, called how to face the hardest talks. And you know, when you, when you think about it, even logically, 
you know, those hardest talks are, are what ultimately make you the leader. That's the reason why you're being paid is to have those conversations and to have them in a timely manner. You know, so for us to be talking about the financial crisis of 2008 at this juncture, you know, it's kind of like, well, that was 12 years ago. You know, right now we got new and different issues. So let's have that conversation now. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different conversation. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. You should bring up Chris Voss. I did come across this book and I always I always tell people uh, when I'm negotiating, I said, well, let's, let's just split it. We'll, we'll split the difference. They're like, OK. And I'm like, great. I'll take 90 percent. You take 10 percent. <laughs> And they go, wait a minute. You said split the difference. I said, yeah, I didn't tell you what the split was. <laughs> I didn't say it was 50-50, but people automatically assume it's 50-50. So, you know, I, I love that leadership because words mean everything. And I want to ask you a question. You know, you talked about uh, M&A, uh, which means you get to see a lot of companies. You get to negotiate with a lot of CEOs and leaders of companies, some good, some bad, some mediocre. What are you looking for? in connecting these companies. The research that I've looked at on M&A is so often they don't work. They're not uh, successful because they don't do enough to bring the cultures of the two organizations together or to have one organization say, this is the culture that we're going to have. You need to adjust whatever you did in your company to ours. When you try to meld two cultures, both companies have to change and it it's almost always a failure. At least that's been my, what I've seen in research, what my experience has been at M&A. What's your experience with this? Yeah, it's, it's funny because it's, it's, it, there's some elements of that that are true and there's some elements of it that I think are publicized. <laughs> okay. Educate us. I'd love to hear it. What, what are you looking for and how does it, how do you make it work from a leadership standpoint? Sure. So you got to be thinking about first, you got to talk about why you do M&A to begin with. Okay. And M&A, you're doing it predominantly for the acquisition of either a market or speed of growth or some kind of technology that's going along with it. It is a it is a faster way of achieving an objective than doing it organically. That's it's, at the end of the day, that's basically what it comes down to. OK. And so once you understand what that is, what the objectives are there, then you start looking at the data I would actually go the other way and say the vast majority of mergers are actually successful. Okay. Um, they are. The ones that are not successful are the ones that get publicized. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> and that's why I've, I've read the research, right? Right. The right. They're always just like, oh, you know, AT&T bought this company and it was a total failure. Or, or, right. or you're at the country club and your buddy had sold his company to someone else and it was just a complete cluster. And they're sitting there going, oh, you know, don't do it. It's just terrible. Now, the reasons why... Um, M&A does fail, are very rarely economic and almost always cultural, okay? I will say that, that if you had to look at, this would actually make a really good PhD thesis, you know, is the reasons for M&A failure. I'm just saying it anecdotally as opposed to empirically, but what I will tell you is that whenever you have um, Darth Vader buying Luke Skywalker, it's really kind of a, a bad thing, right, culturally, And the one thing that I will tell you is that most investment bankers are not focused in on the cultural integration there up front, and they don't ask those questions. Most of the time, they're looking at synergies, they're looking at the balance sheet, they're looking at the P&L and going, okay, if we buy this company, we're going to add this much revenue to us. We're going to add, we're going to be able to cut these types of elements and increase profitability this way, not realizing 
that all the people that are creating those synergies on the on the acquired company are all of a sudden expected to behave differently to the corporate norms of whoever took them over uh, or there, you know, and there's a whole lot of adjustments there. So I think M&A could be made a lot easier, a lot better if those questions are answered early on in the process. You know, do you believe what I believe? Um, do you behave the way that we behave? Here's where we line up culturally. I will say this is that at Cornerstone, the real estate investment trust, we probably did that better than almost anybody. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember or think back on a company that did it better than we did it. And how did you do that? Why were you successful doing it? Was it because you looked at the culture and made it a conscious effort to match them up? Yeah, yeah. And if there was something that was patently different from ours, um, we still needed the asset. We addressed it earlier on. It doesn't mean that we didn't do the deal. It just meant that we addressed it earlier on. But after a while, when you start acquiring properties, when you start acquiring multifamily properties, because they are their own little business, right? They've got their own operating team. Um, you, you realize is that there are some things, if you take it as Emerson said, Emerson said, every person is in some way my superior. And in that, I learn of them. If you realize that every acquisition you make, that organization is in some ways smarter than you are, grab those elements that they're doing and incorporate them into the rest of the parent. And that takes humility. But in most failed M&A, they'll come in and just say, well, we're bigger than you, so therefore we're better than you, so therefore you'll do it our way, and that destroys that end of the culture. But even if you took a couple of slivers out of what they're doing and you incorporate that back into the parent, they feel as though they've contributed, and they have, in a meaningful way to the corporate culture of the bigger organization. They feel appreciated. They felt loved. And that's when you start to see in M&A it really work out financially. Uh, because you're no longer fighting the battles. Yeah, you know, there's so many things that uh, you, I, I worked uh, many years ago uh, for a system of integration company that was purchased by Icon Technology Services. They were a big co- copier company, right? Okay. And they wanted, yeah. they wanted to buy up all these systems integration companies because everything was going digital. And they thought that the strategy was if we control the network, we'll control the copiers. Well, <laughs> that's a nice idea. It's a terrible idea in terms of buying up all these entrepreneurial companies. I worked for a $20 million IT company that was bought by them. And when I went out in the field with salespeople and saw how they sold and who they sold to, which were low level, uh, lower level office managers, and, C- and we were selling to chief technology officers and CIOs and so on, the people we were selling to and what we were selling were solutions, they were selling copiers. And uh, the whole approach, the whole culture was so bad on top of that, something we talked about earlier is having the humility. You mentioned Jim Collins. The number one thing I look in a CEO is a little bit of humility and modesty that they will listen. So that's the first thing. And without that being egoless, then a lot of things are going to fall apart. I had our branch manager who was, uh, had a big ego and was incapable of making a decision. Yeah. So we failed in a company that had been in business for 20 years under the owners that ended up getting bought out and leaving became a branch of failure within 18 months. Yeah. 
And that's what a being part of a bad culture with poor leadership and a poor situation. And I, I have to tell you, Patrick, I tried. I wrote a five-page strategic plan. I gave it to the uh, general manager. I, I tried to do it, and I think I got fired for it. So anyway, <laughs> that's what happens to us leaders, right? You either stay part of the team and go along or you move on. And I ended up having to move on for a lot of reasons. You know, but that actually brings up a really good point about self-leadership, and that is you realizing that there is a delicate balance between never quitting and then realizing that, you know, you're a fish on land and, and, and being able to pull yourself out of that organization because your, your, your value is in what you're contributing to an organization. And sometimes an organization, you know, you're going to ultimately realize that what you're contributing, the organization doesn't either want or need or something else. And, and, and part of self-leadership is saying, you know, I need to open up this slot at this company for someone else who can give them what they need. And that's a, that's a tough decision because you're putting yourself at risk, you know? Yeah, but exactly. It's, it's, and people are never going to see it as messianic, right? They're never going to, they're never going to say, Oh, he left us because we needed him to leave us. Um, but they, but it's, it's the appropriate thing to do. Well, so you, you had mentioned, uh, I think I read in, uh, your, um, uh, your bio with uh, Brighthammer, where you improve performance of invested companies. Yeah. And I'm going to guess that you helped MA companies and other companies kind of bring that together and improve the culture. It's something that uh, I've always been interested in doing with our leadership programs and have felt that if Staterius could get to the right people in MA, there's a huge opportunity to co develop leaderships within merged cultures to help them get along better and actually accelerate the improvement of the organization. Uh, it sounds like you did some of that with, uh, with Brighthammer. Is that? Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly, that was a, that was a, a large part of it. Um, and some of the, some of the bigger mergers within, um, within various industries in which we worked, it was, was trying to bring these teams together uh, and trying to figure it out. I think where a lot of those efforts stall out though, by the way, is that, Everybody wants to talk, but nobody ever wants to put something on the table to say, no, we've got to be able to cut this or, or we really love this. This is good. Let's put this here. And so, again, it goes to a failure of candor, which just says we love this piece of it, but we don't have room for it in the new model. So maybe what we do is we shelve it and see if we can figure it out later. But in this first iteration, it can't happen. But this thing over here that you guys are doing can happen. Those conversations, uh, especially in the integration, once the company has decided that they are going to buy the company, that's when those cultural those cultural mergers should also start happening. Start having those conversations early on. By far, I see the most successful is when those conversations are early. The failures that I see in our industry is when they finish the transaction and then they start the bridge. And by that time, you know, somebody's already in the fifth inning and they're just getting dressed to go to bat. And you're like, well, you already missed four innings. You missed four shots at trying to score. Yeah. Um, and it, you're behind the curve. Yeah. You really are. So let's let's take this back because what you just said is fascinating because what it struck me and you keep talking about candor. And I love that. Again, good to great. Look at the brutal facts. Yep. When you're in this merger acquisition, look at the brutal facts of where the strengths are. What are we going to keep and what are we going to get rid of? Start, stop, continue. You know, we talked about that before. We need to do that very early on, discuss the brutal facts, have the arguments, have the conflict. But there's a level of trust that's needed before that happens. 
And trust is based on our commitment to be able to get things done, but it's also based on vulnerability. Yeah. The acceptance that I have, I have limitations, the organization has limitations, that we're going to be challenged. And if we can be vulnerable and open with that, then the leadership team can move forward. And Patrick Lencioni talks about this in The Advantage, about how trust is built based on that levels of competency and commitment, but also on uh, vulnerability first. And that's a hard thing to create. Were you able to do that at uh, Bright Hammer at times? With I would think that some teams have really come together and be able to do that, and other teams would just fight it every minute. Yeah, it, but it also then goes back to the whole, there was a piece that was written in Forbes that I, that I contributed to um, that talked about this, and, and that is the model of buy-in versus performance. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's the old Boston consulting group model of, you know, high performance, high buy-in of the guys you promote and low performance and low buy-in, you know, those, those are the guys that you fire. And then you've got the people with low performance, but high buy-in and you know, what do you do with those guys? Well, you reassign them or you train them, et cetera. But you come down to the very thorny problem of people who are high performance, but low buy-in. What do you do with those guys? And my answer kind of caught the interviewer off guard. And that's why I wrote the article, um, a guy by the name of Ty Kiesel. And he, uh, when I told him, I said, well, you got to fire those guys. And he goes, wait a second. <laughs> and he stops the interview at that point And he goes, I'm changing the focus of the article. And I want to focus in on this. He goes, you're telling me that you would for- fire your highest performers. And I said, yeah, as a, as a matter of fact, I had just finished a turnaround of a medical company that where we did exactly that. We fired the number one sales guy. And, uh, and the logic behind it is how many cancer cells would you accept in your body? And the answer is zero because they divide and they multiply, right? I mean, so, you know, one becomes two becomes four becomes eight, 16, you know, and, and geometrically upward. And so, but the idea behind it is even in M and a, there are people who are on board with the, with the concept on both sides, on the acquirer and on the, the acquired. And you're trying to identify which are the ones that see the bigger vision of these two companies coming together and what is their ideas on culture and what is the sustaining milk of culture for each of these organizations and what has to survive. And if you have somebody who is not on board with that, well, there are many other places for them to work. Well, I I agree. This brings us to full circle because Jack Welsh, after he retired, specifically said that group of people, high performers that didn't buy in, they didn't buy into the culture, they didn't buy into the values. He said, I should have fired more of them. Yeah. yeah. And at the time, GE was really hammered for that whole 10% cut thing, right? Yep. You know, the bottom, the, the bottom 10% gets cut. And, you know, his argument would have been, yeah, maybe it should have been 15. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It should have been higher. Yeah. But, but it's, it's even, even beyond that, um, when you're looking at it and you're saying, who are the ones that inspire others? The ones that inspire others are the ones that say, this is the organization and I believe in it and I'm a, I'm a member of this and I want to see it succeed. They bring others along with them. And, uh, and, if, and if you have somebody who is not contributing in a positive way to that, you know, again, a sharp knife cuts the quickest and hurts the least. Well, I, I, and the, I interview executives all the time, and it, there's almost always one who's on that executive team. I call them, I call them black holes of, of energy, where they're sucking the energy out of everybody else, but they're the high performer. They're doing the, this amazing job. I'm like, but if you get rid of that black hole, there's at least 10 or 20 other people that if they improve their performance by 10%, they will far exceed the results that this individual is holding them back. 
ironically, that's exactly what happened with the medical company. There you go. And everybody and everybody knew. Um, here's the problem: is that management had no credibility because they were allowing this person to terrorize the other 12, 15 salespeople. Yes. Right? And, yes. And, and, and to be able to suck the oxygen out of the room and just, you know, grab accounts or do whatever, stomp all over people or demand, you know, a greater cut on commissions or other things like that. And so now management has no leadership, has no credibility whatsoever because everybody's going, well, wait a second, you're, you're letting him behave that way. Yep. So, you know, there's the story of Sun Tzu and I'm sure you've, you've read about it, you know, trying to, trying to teach the emperor's concubine soldier. The art of war. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. And, 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 you know, he, he makes a boast to the emperor that, you know, he can train anybody to be a soldier. It was a different time where, where women weren't as valued as much as, as men in warfare. And so he brings up all the emperor's concubines and he puts them in a line and they're laughing at him, etc. And he turns to the emperor after the first time they disobey a command and they say, he says to him, he goes, if they didn't understand what I was asking them to do, it's my fault. It's the leader's fault. It's the general's fault. But if I explain it clearly, they should be able to get it. If they don't get it the second time, then it's their fault. He explains it again and then issues the order again. And then what ends up happening was is that the 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 emperor's favorite concubine, you know, starts giggling and everybody starts giggling. And Sun Tzu savagely walks up to her and lops off her head. Right. Well, we wouldn't look at that kind of leadership today, except for the fact that we were just talking about firing people who don't necessarily have buy in. Can you imagine what happened to everybody else that was remaining? Right. <laughs> they're like, they stepped in the line and they just like, got their attention. Yeah, yeah. I, I've got it. If, if he's willing to do that to the emperor's favorite then yeah. what does it mean for me? Again, I'm, I'm not talking about capital punishment or other things like that, but what we're saying is, is that when you have performance versus buying- No, it's, a, it's an analogy that you're using. Yeah, it is. It, it, and it's one of those things where you've got somebody who is disruptive to the organization. The hardest decision in the world is to say, I will forego their productivity to save the rest of the organization because I think the organization can be better as a result of this person going through the combined efforts of everybody else who remains. Yeah. And in my experience, the other part of that, when they, you've lost confidence, you get the confidence back. Once you let that person go and people go, okay, then people, then they say, what took you so long? Oh oh yeah. Always. (laughs) So the other one, the other one, if you're new to the organization, like I am, because usually we parachute in, they're like, we're so glad you're here. You know, we're so yeah. why, you know, why, you know, why yeah. couldn't this happen two years ago or three years ago? We all knew that it was going on, but, you know, nobody would ever do anything about it. And you're like, OK. Yeah. I had a vice president uh, who was a new vice president, had an operations manager that was doing things that he shouldn't have been doing. And uh, for six months, he held on to him because he, while he's working on this project, he used every excuse in the world. And I was coaching him like almost every other week. And one day I walk in and I said, so have you fired this guy yet? You talked about firing him in the last third. No, no, I, I still want to get to this. I'm, I said, don't, don't worry about him anymore. It's not a problem. He's not a problem. And he goes, what do you mean? I said, he's not a problem, but he needs to go. I said, I know that, but he's not a problem. He says, so what's the problem? I said, you, <laughs> you see, you've lost all the confidence because the president and CEO both supported you to get rid of this guy. You haven't gotten rid of him. So just to your point, this exact thing happened to me. And I said, you are you are now the problem and you are losing credibility and you're a good leader. And you, all the things that you've worked on for the last six months are going right out the window because of this one decision. Yeah. 
And that was on a Tuesday. On Friday, the guy was gone. <laughs> so yeah. he understood the, the the weight of it, you know, but people have to come to that realization. So I, I we could talk for hours, Patrick. Um, I want to finish up today, though. There's so much great, great stuff that we talked about today about your history and your time. I loved what you said about Jack asking smart questions, which is just the real core of leadership coaching. But I want to ask you this, if you were to be, if you were able to write yourself a letter Mm -hmm. and go back 20, 25 years and write Patrick a letter saying, you know what, Patrick, I'd like you to focus a little bit more on this or a lot more on this. What would this be? Um, when I got my first executive job, uh, I called a friend of mine who was already an executive, Darren Huxel. And I said to him, I said, Darren, I said, you know, I'm kind of nervous because I'm stepping into an executive role here. You know, what do I do? And he, he gave me some great advice that will lead to my letter that you're asking about. But the first, the, the piece of advice he said, you got to remember is that everything you whisper comes out of bullhorn. And, and he goes, whether or not it's positive or negative, you whisper it and the person in the organization thinks it's being shouted at them. So if you say you're really awesome, what comes out is you are the best, you are incredible, you are amazing, right? And he goes, and at the same time, they screw something up and you just say, wow, you really screwed that up. What they are hearing is my career is over. Like I'm never going to have trust again. You loser. Yes. Yes. And so again, the, the, the whispers deliver through bullhorns. And I've always thought through that, that anything that you say to anybody in a leadership role, if it's not taken out of context, it's taken out of volume and, yeah. and it becomes a defining moment for who they are. So you have to be really thoughtful about that. But in, if I was if I was um, to go back in time with my 52-year-old brain and drop it into my 22-year-old body uh, and give myself instructions, there are, there, there are probably about four elements of it. And the first one is fundamental, which is about focus your love. Whatever it is that you're choosing to do, focus and do that thing that you love, no matter what the noise is around you, right? It took me years to come to Transact Capital Partners, and everybody in my office knows that I would I would sit here and do my job 24-7 if I didn't need sleep and food. I just love what I do, and it's so much fun. It's great. So that's the that's the underlying thing. But really, when it comes to leadership in terms of the competencies that I would whisper to myself back at that time is the ability you can tell probably on this podcast, I have a reasonably big personality, right? <laughs> reasonably, you know, you walk in over and there's some people that, that have that as well. But I would tell my 22 year old self, focus on the ability to be quiet Focus in on the ability to shut up. Focus in on your ability to speak last, right? Uh, Because it allows you to understand before being understood. If you want to go back to the the Covey model on that. Number two, I would tell myself, have the ability, because I developed this usually when I was about 30 years old, have the ability to be perfectly okay with never getting credit for anything. Mm. Okay. If you have the ability not to, not to need to take credit, not to have people go, Oh, you're amazing. Or that this idea came from you. What you will achieve is significantly greater. And then the last thing I would say is the ability of rapport. It's not the ability of personality and, and leading people 
you know, by shouting. It's the ability to build rapport with people, to understand what made them who they are. I think a lot of times people get frustrated with other people because of their behaviors, because they don't understand necessarily what caused that behavior. What is it in their past or in their history? And I think true leaders, deep leaders get in and understand where their people have been and where their people are, even collectively as an organization, some of the bigger organizations that are out there, there is an element of commonality that everybody has that brought them to this place and being able to speak to that. If you do, the earlier you do it in your career, the better, but do it at some point in your careers is have the ability to build rapport, but understanding where people are and where they have been. Well, that's some that's some amazing advice, and I, I love the way uh, you started that, which is focus your love, and if you focus, then turn that into a behavior. Quiet, speak less, uh, g- give credit to others, build that rapport, build relationships. Our definition, <clears throat> our definition of leadership is the ability to build relationships so we can achieve our goals together with compassionate accountability. Yeah. And. There it is. There, there it is. There it all is in one. There thing. it all is in one thing. And I, Patrick, I cannot thank you enough for taking time away from you. I know your busy schedule. You mentioned earlier you were on, I guess, fifteen of these last week. Yeah. You're a man in demand right now. So taking some time for all of my fellow statarians that uh, work with me. We really, really appreciate your insights, your time. And uh, I thank you so much for uh, taking the time today with us. I'm I'm honored to be in with you. I think you're a thought leader in terms of leadership itself. And I think you've got a a message that deserves to be heard. Thank you, Patrick. And how how can people get a hold of you? You can send me that information and we'll put it in the the podcast. But uh, let's tell them how they can get a hold of you if they want to. Very easy to reach me at patrick at transactcapital.com. Patrick at transactcapital.com. And uh, my direct line is 804-612-7103. Again, that's 804-612-7103. I do have a curiosity, Gary, and that is anybody who wants to be my Facebook friend can be my Facebook friend. I don't care. But if you want to get into my LinkedIn, um, we have to have had a conversation. I have to know who you are. Most people do that the inverse way. Yeah. But it's more important to me that when you call me and say, hey, do you know this person that I can actually say, yes, I do. Gotcha. Great. That's some great principles. Thank you, Mr. Patrick Morin. I am Dr. Gary, making good bosses into great leaders with compassionate accountability. This is Leading from the Front, and we want to thank one more time, Mr. Patrick Morin, for being our guest today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being with us on Leading from the Front with Dr. Gary McGrath. Remember to subscribe to this podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about the work Dr. Gary is doing, visit statarius.com, S-T-A-T-A-R-I-U-S.com. Music for Leading from the Front is provided by Peter Katz. For more of his music, visit peterkatz.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.